it was just like web designer after web designer. And like every single one was like, we need to rebuild your entire website. And I was like, no, and you know, and it just became this like unwieldy patchwork of just crap on the back end and also probably on the front end. And it was like unusable by me. And it was just this like monster. Hello, fellow risk takers, and welcome to my worst investment ever. Stories of loss to keep you winning. In our community, we know that to win in investing, you must take risk, but to win big, you've got to reduce it. This episode is sponsored by A. Stotts Academy's online course, How to Start Building Your Wealth, Investing in the Stock Market. I wrote this course for those who want to go from feeling frustrated, intimidated, or overwhelmed by the stock market to becoming confident and in control of their financial future. Go to myworstinvestmentever.com slash deals to claim your discount now. Fellow risk takers, this is your worst podcast host, Andrew Stotts, and I'm here with featured guests, Kanor Bahal. Kanor, are you ready to rock? I'm ready. Let's do this. <laughs> so Kanor is the founder and CEO of MindHatch, a firm that specializes in getting companies better results with creativity through design thinking, organizational improv, innovation facilitation, and diversity and inclusion. She's also the author of I Quit, The Life-Affirming Joy of Giving Up, which will be published by New Degree Press in April 2021. Kanor, take a moment and fill any further tidbits about your life. Oh, sure. On the spot already. Well, I am a longtime improv comedy performer. I've been doing improv comedy for 10 years. That's usually my one fun fact when I'm in a group of people, unless that group of people is other improvisers, then I struggle to find what my one fun fact is. But yeah, and I have a adorable Bernese mountain dog named Nika. She is named after a Japanese whiskey that I love a lot. Yeah. And those things pretty much wrap me up, I think. <laughs> That's good. And for the listeners out there, what is improv anyways? I mean, I, I think I know what it is. I think I've experienced it, but maybe just yeah. give us a background of kind of what it is and what type of people do that. Oh, yeah. What type of people do that? Okay. Yeah. I mean, like psychologically analyze improvisers. Well, well, one thing when it comes to like the type of people who do improv, I, I do think that there is this assumption out there that improv is kind of only for extroverts, you know, or only for people who have like a propensity for the theatrical, you know, and I do happen to be an extrovert, but I can tell you having done this in multiple cities for many, many years, I've been on dozens of teams. Improv definitely has and benefits from its fair share of introverts. And it really takes all kinds because really what it's about at heart is just collaborating and learning the skills to live co-create something on stage out of nothing. And really there's no reason to like assume that an extrovert would be especially good at that, you know? So I think it really does take a lot of different types of thinking and types of people and everyone has their kind of strength and their role to play on a team. And you kind of figure out what that mixture of magic is, you know, and, and hope that it comes across on stage when you perform. So yeah. it's interesting that you were saying like to create something out of nothing, yeah. you know, sometimes, I mean, I'm, I'm not a, a particularly good writer, but I have to write sometimes. And when I write something, I print it out, I read it and I, I you know, edit it, I go back, I rewrite it. And then at the end of that period of time of writing, I have a one page document and I'm like, damn, that was a white piece of paper. Nice. Yeah. 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 When you see like the, I mean, improv happens to be pretty ephemeral, you know, it's like the, 
exact kind of like you had to be there kind of art form, you know, to really understand it. But it is pretty nice to have that blank page, that blank slate, you know, and just kind of trusting your team and trusting the skills you've been working on that those will see you through, you know, that you can kind of find the funny in anything and trust that the funny will come, you know, just by being honest and truthful and playing with each other. So I hear you on the writing because I'm, I started revising my book manuscript last night, in fact. So there's no, no secret why today I went and bought my first bottle of booze in a really long time. (laughs) (laughs) I think I'm going to have to Ernest Hemingway my way through these revisions. (laughs) Yeah. Yeah. Well, there's so many things in your, I mean, you gave me a pretty short and tight bio, unlike most people that give me a very long one. Oh yeah. (laughs) But there's, there's a lot of things in there that are to me interesting. So I just want to ask you a couple more questions before we get into your big question. And the first question is what, wait a minute. Now I'm thinking for myself, I'm thinking, I remember Frank Zappa had an album, does humor belong in music? And it was like, does humor or improv belong in organizations? And I'm thinking here you have organizational improv that you talk about. Tell us just briefly about how does that work? You know, most people think about work as pretty stodgy. Yeah, we think of work, you know, we've all kind of, especially if you've grown up in the West and especially in the United States, you kind of, you stop learning through play by the time you get out of elementary school, sometimes maybe even earlier, right? And then suddenly it becomes kind of like just fall in line and follow the rules and comply and conform, you know, and you really stop knowing how to play. And there's a reason why children are like the greatest improvisers on earth, like the best, right? Because they don't see constraints, right? They only see possibility And they know how to play, right? It's how you first learn anything is through play. And so organizational improv is kind of like my and mind hatches phrase, you know, for the application of the behaviors and the mindsets and the skills that are behind improv theater and improv comedy and applying them to the workplace. So, you know, we find applications for it in a lot of like professional skills building, you know, like using improv as the teaching methodology to get teams to be more collaborative, be more innovative, even training customer service skills or like leadership development. So improv is because it's so innately human, right? You have nothing but yourself and your body and your voice on stage and your teammates on stage with you. You know, it's such an innately human art form. It translates really well to something else that is innately human, which is in any organization, in any team, you're always kind of like trying to create something that's bigger than yourselves, right? Mm. And that's kind of what improv is too, you know? And so I think the the playfulness of improv is a really helpful conduit through which to kind of relearn how we work and like just think in different ways, certainly more creatively and more collaboratively for sure. But yeah, I think it's it's all in a, an effort to kind of, you know, not turn work into play, but just kind of recognize that there's a reason why we all started out with play, you know, and why it was so valuable. And it's sad that by the time we're adults, it's kind of beaten out of us. Right. And it's, uh, it's, <laughs> kids uh, stop playing around over there. Stop horsing yeah. around. <laughs> yeah, totally. And so, but I think it, it can be like a fish to water or like riding a bike, you know, when I get a group of what you might think buttoned up stodgy adults. I mean, God, I've, I've done an improv session for the Pentagon on a couple of occasions and literally had like a general and like some dudes and fatigues who were like in my, and they just loved it. Like yeah. you, the people you wouldn't expect to have an easy time of like 
getting back into the groove of playfulness, you know, and possibility. We all have that in us. Yeah. Yeah. So many things go on in my mind. You know, first of all, (laughs) I studied some seminars when I was young with a guy named Dr. W. Edwards Deming. He was the father Mm -hmm. of the quality movement. And one of his 14 points was to bring joy back to work, to Mm -hmm. bring pride of workmanship, to bring fun to work. And he was yeah. a real humanist, although people would think of he oh, would be yeah. a statistical guy. And that really is interesting because, you know, so many people think opposite. And mm-hmm. what's also made me think is that when I graduated from Cal State Long Beach, I went to work for Pepsi in Los Angeles as a management trainee. And I worked for three years and did my MBA there. So I worked for three years in the U.S. and I've worked for 29 years in Thailand, either yeah. on teams or managing teams. Thais look at work so differently. And wow. I think one of the big things is that if work is not fun, they're gone. Wow, that's fascinating. I didn't realize <clears throat> that about Thais. Yeah, if yeah. work is not, if it's not fun, they're just, mm. it's just not, you know, and that's another thing is they're, they're less money driven, let's say, maybe than another culture in Asia, mm. let's say. Their primary thing is the relationships that you make at work. They go out together after work. They go on mm-hmm. holidays together. They do all kinds of, and, and of course, they have great sense of humor. So we have a yeah. lot of fun at work. <laughs> so in fact, I've spent my, really my life either on teams or leading teams where, first of all, anger is not allowed in Thai society mm-hmm. and confrontation is forbidden, basically. Mm-hmm. And that has its good and its bad sides. But the good side about that is that people smile and have fun and try to get through it. Now, mm-hmm. there are some bad sides when you don't have that, sure. because, you know, all that. But it just made me think a lot about, you know, what are the things I really love? And there's an infection happening in Thailand right now. And I think it's been spreading across Asia for a while. And it's not COVID. It is modern American management styles mm-hmm. of KPIs and numbers and people thinking yeah. that they can get the most out of business by bosses sitting and looking at numbers and charts and graphs and that people could be managed through numbers. Yeah. And that's, and that's a sad, sad state of affairs. It is. You're speaking my language because, you know, I, I, I am a design thinking, human centered design practitioner as well. And so when you use the phrase like humanist, you know, that that person described himself as like, it really resonated with me because human centered design, it's right there. It's like people first, like listen to your customers, your users, your employees, whoever it is you're trying to solve problems for, whoever's behavior you're trying to amend in some way. It's like, look at the people first, right. And, and really seek to understand them, you know, and it's, I'm not of course opposed to data for data's sake, right? Data has its place, but it's about getting intentional about when it's the right thing to lead with, right? And I think anytime you're working with people, which is a lot of the time, it's often not going to get the results that you hope. And it can sometimes be, frankly, like an act of cowardice. You know, it's just like, oh, I'm going to look at the numbers because I'm too scared to talk to people or I'm too scared of what they're going to tell me. There's a bunch (laughs) of wimpy bosses out there that think that the numbers can tell it. And one of the things about numbers that I've learned over the years is that measuring things, ultimately as an analyst, I'm measuring things all the time. Mm -hmm. But if I was to take your notebook computer and I was going to measure the width of your notebook computer, would your notebook computer be aware that I'm measuring it? No, Mm -hmm. it would not. 
-hmm. And therefore, measurement of inanimate objects is a pretty troubleless thing. Mm -hmm. However, if I was to measure a person's performance or other things, and the person knows that they're being measured, mm -hmm. then you raise a whole other element. So when you measure things that are inanimate objects, measurement works perfectly well. But when you measure things that know they're being measured, there's a mm -hmm. huge problem that comes up about that person's reactions to the measurement and yeah. many, many different things. So that's, yeah, I think that's, anthropologists have confronted that over the decades as well, where it's like going in even to observe like a population, like your mere presence is changing that population, right? And it's it's entering in a factor that people have to respond to. So it, it does question just how unbiased can we be? And, you know, and we, we fool ourselves when we think numbers aren't biased, right? Because they've been created by us, you know? And so, exactly. um, yeah, there's always going to be bias there. Yeah. yeah. So for those people that want to learn about this man, Dr. W. Edwards Deming, they could just type his name in, in the internet. I also wrote a book, which is on Amazon called Transform Your Business with Dr. Deming's 14 points. Mm -hmm. And that's where I tried to bring out what this man brought to me, which was that you can bring joy to work. I really want to get into one last thing on your bio. What sure. the heck? How could you write a book and call it I Quit? Tell us <laughs> just a little bit about what your meaning is in this book. Sure. I mentioned that I just begun revisions of the book. So it is like all I'm thinking about right now is so I'll do my best to be brief. But the book is titled I Quit The Life Affirming Joy of Giving Up. And it's really an idea that I had knocking around in my head for many years because I had noticed in myself that after years of being a perfectionist, after years of being the kind of overly committed, stick it out for the sake of sticking it out kind of person, I started to have some really excellent quits in my life. And I realized those quits that they were very, very positive and that they really got me to where I wanted to be much more swiftly. And so this kind of process of not just reinvention, but just kind of making making decisions about and for your life based on what you've learned about yourself, you know, and what your trade-offs are, what your values are. And so, yeah, so I, it was born out of my own experiences, but also just from talking to people and it's always loving hearing people's quitting stories. And I think you can really understand someone really quickly when you just ask why they quit something, whether mm. it's a relationship or a job or a city or whatever it might be, you can learn a lot about that person, sometimes even more than asking them why they chose to do something. And so the book is a collection of stories of everyday people and the things that they summoned the courage to quit in their lives and why they have no regrets about it. And yeah, and so I hope the book is going to get people to rethink and reframe quitting and view it through a new paradigm and realize that quitters aren't losers and quitters are actually oftentimes pretty courageous and have a lot of self-knowledge and self-awareness to make the big decisions that make their lives better. I'm looking forward to reading that. And I think I'll put any, any links to that that I can get from you into the show. Oh, okay. notes. And I encourage the listeners to look for it. I mean, I, I wrote a, a piece about why we stop doing performance appraisals in one of my businesses, Coffee Works, that I have in Thailand. Mm -hmm. And what we basically, because the reason why it's important is that many people go into, they think about quitting and they don't want to quit 
because they don't know what they're going to do yeah. in replacement of that quitting mm-hmm. of a relationship or of a job. And what I basically said in that article that I wrote about performance appraisals is that after looking at them in a lot of detail, looking at the time spent on them, looking at how employees felt about them, the quality of them, what they really brought to our customer, we mm-hmm. just came to the conclusion that this is a waste of time. Mm-hmm. And the way that we did these performance appraisals and try to assign A, B, C to people and then rank them, it just goes against you know so many things about the way humans are. And we just found that nobody was really happy except a few people that were figured out how to kind of rig the system mm-hmm. to get their bonus every time. And so, but people ask us, well, if we don't do performance appraisals, what are we going to do? Mm-hmm. And I said, that's just the wrong question. Yeah. What, you're going to keep doing something that's wrong because yeah. you don't know what's right. The objective really yeah. is stop doing what's wrong. And then actually the space will open. Yeah, that is exactly what I learned from writing this book. Like a lot of the people who shared their stories with me happened to share with me their first big quit quitting stories. The first time they ever did it. And time and time again, I kept hearing, like, say, like, one of the benefits was it just opened up my life to so many other things that I actually wanted, you know? And so, yeah, so, yeah, you're echoing exactly, you know, one of the many kind of takeaways and themes from the book, for sure. Mm-hmm. And, and and definitely this kind of idea that, you know, and I write about this in my introduction, it's uncanny what you just said. I referenced it in my introduction that, like, we're so used to thinking of quitting as, like, a negative, like not just in like the stigma, the negative stigma, but also like it connotes the absence of something mm. that there's like nothing in its place, you know, when, when actually it's toward what you want, you know, yeah. everything else you're doing this. Yeah. There's a million things you could do. Yeah, everything else is out there. It's not failure, you know? <laughs> yeah. Fantastic. So for the listeners out there, I challenge you right now to think about what is something in your life? a person, place, thing, a relationship, a job, this or that, that you really know in your heart is not right for you. Maybe it's time to take a lesson from, from Kanor and think about, you know, maybe it's time. And if it's not time today, then I challenge you to read her book in April and then <laughs> you'll be inspired. So, all right, now it's time to share your, speaking of time, it's time. Yeah. Now it's it's time to share your worst investment ever. And since no one ever goes into their worst investment thinking it will be, tell us a bit about the circumstances leading up to it and then tell us your story. Sure. Yeah. So my circumstances were that I had just quit my job at Deloitte Consulting to start my own company, the Start Mind Hatch. And, you know, I remember just immediately, and I don't blame myself, just going into like bootstrap mode. Like I remember even having like this piece of paper up in my bedroom wall and like writing down all the things that I should like cut out that were personal expenditures. You know, actually I, I, one of the things that was on the chopping block was I remember writing, stop buying books and like go to the library, you know? And so I'm still a passionate library goer because I, made that decision, you know, seven, eight years ago. So I'm in this bootstrapping mentality, you know, because I'm starting a a business of my own. I don't know what I'm doing. You know, I know the things that I want to be doing for clients, but I don't know how to go about doing it, right? Well, one of the things I decide I should do is I should have a website. Of course, like, why wouldn't you have a website? I'm just thinking kind of like improv. 
Well, right? we don't know yeah. what we're doing, but we're just yeah, yeah. do it. Fill the space. Just say something and magic will happen. Yeah. And so um, so I was like, okay, I'm, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to have a website. But I was like, again, this bootstrapping mentality of like, I don't want to spend hardly anything on this website. And I really, my expectations for the website were very, very low. But I thought I was being smart. I, you know, I thought to myself like, oh, I'm just like a single shingle consultant, you know, like my website's not going to like bring me business. People can't click and buy what I have to offer and, you know, use like an online shopping cart, you know? And so, so I basically was like, I just need like, I think at the time what web designers called like a brochure website. I think this was really static, two, three pages, who I am, what my niche does, email done. And so so I, I did hire someone to like, you know, make that for me because I'm not a web designer. I have no skill in that. <laughs> and, but I, I think I paid like barely a thousand dollars, you know, and I was like, okay, cool. I have this website up. Well, as like my business started to develop and as I started wanting more for my business and I started like, you know, yeah, I'm a B2B business and, you know, people aren't going to click and buy, but like. I started learning like, wow, my website could be doing a lot more work for me. Like it could be a lead generator, you know, it could answer questions that people are wanting to know about, you know, these very niche, odd things that I I do in my practice. And so over the years, it was just like, oh my God, like people will often ask me like, okay, what are like, what's the worst thing about running your own business? Hands down, it's been my website saga. Hands down, it's been time after time, after that first time, not finding a good person that I would work with a second time for my website or for other things as well. And so one, it took me a really, really long time to find like my forever web designer who now I have and love her. (laughs) um, But in those intervening years before I found her, it was just like web designer after web designer. And like every single one was like, we need to rebuild your entire website. And I was like, no, you know, and it just became this like unwieldy patchwork of just crap on the back end and also probably on the front end. And it was like unusable by me. And it was just this like monster. And it was always a pain, you know, to do anything with it. And so my regrets around that, I wish I had been a little less, bootstrappy at the beginning, dare I say cheap even. And I wish I just maybe had a bit more, I guess, sophistication around what a website could do for my business. And tell us about how your website is now compared to, you know, the way you look at your website now or how you... Yeah. I mean, I go to my, I will, first of all, I don't go to my website all that often because I hate seeing photos of myself. So I, I kind of don't go to it as often as I probably should, but it works. Like I have automation set up. I have like, it's integrated with my newsletter and other forms and it's, you can download my one pagers, you know, it's, it's like a, a one-stop shop where someone can go and learn and contact me and I find business through that. People contact me, you know, to work with me through the forum on the website. And so it's working, you know, I think there's always, always room mm. for improvement, but yep. it's like yep. the, the bones are now solid, you know, and, and, and it took if a you long had time. Done that, if you had done that right at the beginning, oh. how would it have changed your outcome? Oh my God. I would have definitely saved money. I would have saved so much heartache and annoyance and time that I, that I spent either 
trying to teach web designers how to be professional and serve clients and ultimately firing them and then launching the search for a new one, you know, but yeah, it would have saved me a lot of time and a lot of heartache and, and annoyance for sure. Yeah. So I wish I had just made that investment right at the beginning mm. to have something that was going to be able to grow with me and grow with my business. Yeah. Yep. So there's a few things that I take away. I mean, one of the things is that I did the exact same thing. Oh my God. I'm so sorry. Yes. It's so painful. First advice I give to any budding entrepreneur or like small business owner. I'm like, don't skimp on your website. Yeah. Yeah, So, and recently I've decided to really, really improve. Now I've been improving them over time, but bringing all the pieces together, it's just hard. I mean, the first thing that about it all, that's very fascinating to me is that if you want to hire a full-time accountant to work in your business, you know, you just put out an ad looking for an accountant and you hire him. You want to hire a full-time salesperson, put out an ad, get a salesperson. But I've found that it's very hard if I was to say, I want to get a, you know, I want to improve my website and make it a lead generator, a money generator. Mm-hmm. Who do you hire? You know, okay, there's a design person, but there's also the copy that's on there. There's the, the whole, you know, it's just, it's a much more complex thing. And I just found that you can't hire someone And nowadays, like I have multiple websites, like seven or eight, and I could literally have someone sitting next to me working with me, but I can't find that person. Everything is outsourced in that area. And that that's one of the unique things that makes it hard for small business. So that's my first kind of takeaway that I've realized is I kind of got to do it myself in partnership with some different people that can help in different areas. And now there are a small number of people that basically come along and say, I can take you from zero to big revenue, but those people are expensive. Yeah. And you say, you know, as any person starting a business, you, you got to be careful about the money. So that's kind of the first thing that I thought about. And the second thing is that what I did when the crisis came, when the COVID madness came, I figured, you know, there's a lot of people out of work in Thailand and there's a lot of young people that are looking for jobs and they can't find them. So I decided that I would offer internships in my company. Mm. And so, and I'm, I'm working on my home office basically, and I do have a pretty reasonably sized facility here. So mm. I decided that I would offer internships. And from that time, from April until today, I probably had 60 different interns work with me. Some of wow. them worked for a month. Some of them have worked for eight months. Some of them I've hired. And the idea then is I used that period of time to rewrite the websites. And mm. it's really hard. You know, it's hard for everybody. To, to put together. But I, I recommend one book that really helped me and it's called Story Brand by Donald Miller. And it basically is talking about creating a story for your customer. When someone comes to your website, they want to see a story about a transformation. And so nice. that book helped me a lot to rewrite my website. So that's a second thing. And I just think it's, it's a huge challenge for any startup, but those are some of my takeaways. Anything else that you would add? Yeah, no, I would just plus one to what you said earlier about like when I, I mean, there was definitely a day, many days, in fact, where I didn't know the difference between a web designer and a web developer, you know, like let alone back end, front end. I mean, I, I think one of the biggest surprises to me when I first started Mindhatch was I was like a humanities major. I studied journalism. You know, I've always been in kind of like the softer side of, of business, you know, and and so I thought marketing, I know what marketing is, you know, that, that is probably a thing that I can do on my own that I don't need to outsource. 
But then I started my company and I just realized, wow, marketing is a giant umbrella. There is a lot under that and a lot of specialties and subspecialties, you know, and like, I remember like, like learning that like, okay, like not every web designer is actually knows SEO. Like there are whole SEO experts out there, you know? And so it is this, it is like part of the growing pains of like running your own company is kind of like learning yourself what that patchwork of people is that you're going to need and, you know, understanding when it is worth the investment to like go for the one-stop shop, even if maybe they have some things that you don't need. But yeah, so I definitely, I can't commiserate with that. <laughs> so the next question I want to set up a little bit before I ask mm-hmm. it, and that is, let's think about our listeners out there who are, you know, maybe they lost their job in the mm-hmm. COVID time and they're trying to set up their own business. Mm-hmm. They are setting up their website. Up until this point, they've kind of thought about it the way you described you thought about it at the beginning. Think about that man or woman who's listening right now and try to answer this question in relation to them. Mm -hmm. Based upon what you learn from this story and what you continue to learn, what one action, Mm. one, would you recommend our listeners take to avoid suffering the same fate? My advice is contingent upon how long you want to do the thing that requires a website. And so if, if you are committed that it's going to be something you're going to do for three or more years, I say invest in that website upfront. I think maybe part of my own lack of investment was maybe just my own insecurity around how successful my business would be and therefore how long I would do it. Mm-hmm. <laughs> and so, but I, uh, I think I uh, should have known that I was going whole hog and wasn't looking back. And so I think if, if that, if that characterizes you as well, like you're into it, I say, don't skip on your website, really make that investment and let it, let it help you. Great advice. And I think one of the things for the listeners out there is that you mentioned that just kind of touched me. And and Mm -hmm. in fact, I just feel a little bit seriously touched by it and uh, sense that insecurity and how you feel about your business and yourself when you start. And therefore, you may shy away from doing the website because of that insecurity. And so I want to put out a challenge to all the listeners out there. If you're going to be doing your own business and you're going to be going out there, I challenge you, put it out on the web in a great way. Put yourself out, take the risk, build it in build your story, build the story of transformation of your customers, and it will reward you tremendously in the long run. So that's my challenge to the listeners. What do you think? Good challenge? I think it's a great one. It's a great one. It's uh, definitely taking the risk, but also how big of a risk is it? You know, that's like to tie it back to my book. You know, it's a, it's a risk if you do, and it's a risk if you don't, right? Yep. Why is one inherently more risky than the other? So. Yep. Fantastic. All right. Last question. What's your number one goal for the next 12 months? Okay. The next 12 months. Well, definitely I've got book brain going on. So my number one goal is to, of course, launch the book in April. End of April is when it will be published. And, you know, I'm already starting my like virtual pre-published book tour. So my number one goal for next year is to sell a lot of books and also get to talk about my book to provide keynotes and do author talks and book talks, you know, at organizations and at conferences. So that's my thing I'm most looking forward to in 2021. Fantastic. Well, listeners, 
There you have it. Another story of loss to keep you winning. Remember to go to myworstinvestmentever.com slash deals to claim your discount on my course, How to Start Building Your Wealth, Investing in the Stock Market. As we conclude, Kenor, I want to thank you again for coming on the show. And on behalf of Ace Dots Academy, I hereby award you alumni status for turning your worst investment ever into your best teaching moment. Do you have any parting words for the audience? Just try it out and experiment. Most things in life are not as risky as you think they are. Try it out and experiment. Go for it. Well, that's a wrap on another great story to help us create, grow, and most importantly, protect our well fellow risk takers. This is your worst podcast host, Andrew Stott, saying, I'll see you on the upside.